And I will go ahead and tell you this. If you make it through this sermon, you can make it through anything. I think I kind of alluded to that last week, so. If you would, take your Bibles, open with me to Genesis 2. And before we plunge into this today, it would be a very wise thing to pray about this sermon, so let's do so. Father, help us in receiving the word as it's written, plainly for what it says. Father, give us ears to hear. I pray, God, the indwelling Holy Spirit would take the material of your word and change our perspectives, change our convictions, so that they would align with what you desire. You are a holy and gracious and amazing Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, God, for his blood. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. And thank you, God, that we stand as free people, able to live a new life all by your doing. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So on your handout that you have, we've been going through a, a series called Foundational Framework. We are laying the foundations, or let's just say it this way, we're going over the foundations that have already been laid by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. And so some of the things that we have covered so far at the very top, foundational truths. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. One of the biggest things that He shows us up front is that He wants to be known. And of all the ways that He's chosen to communicate to us, we see that through nature, we see that through what's been revealed and everything around us, the intricacies of how everything is made, but the most amazing thing he decided to do was to take ink and paper and put it together for our understanding. Now, we may say that that is a simplistic way of going about it, but it is the simple things that often confound the wise, and that's how God chooses to operate. I'm not here to argue with it, I'm just here to receive it, and hopefully you are too. The next one, God is the eternal sovereign creator, and all that he creates is good. If you remember his declarations, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Everything he made was good. But we have another one here. Man is a responsible agent. Now that doesn't mean he's a secret agent. Don't everybody get on that trip, right? When I use the word agent. He's a responsible agent. He has been given a task. We have been given a task to fulfill, to uphold. We are responsible. And if you're responsible, you are also accountable. Now remember this, some of the worst things in the world you can do, and I'm sure hopefully you can amen this, I'm only 16 months in, but have mercy. One of the worst things you can do is put an expectation upon your child and then not follow through with the accountability when they don't meet that expectation. What does that teach them? This is why we have this victim mentality today. It's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. It's not my fault, it's my grandfather's fault. It's not my fault, it's my best friend's fault. I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. No, 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 no. The Bible says you are responsible, and if you are responsible, you are accountable. You are held to a moral standard. And who defines what is moral and what is not? God does exactly. Why? Because he is God and I am not. Praise the Lord for that. So we've seen two of three divine institutions. 
in the scriptures. The first one that we saw was the idea of family. The idea that when God set out to create and he wanted to make a special crowning creation of all that he had done, he decided that under the heading of man, he was going to make distinctions. Male and female is how he would make them. The first institution, and why, why do we call it divine institution? Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. Don't look at your papers. What is a divine institution? Do we know? A lot of whispering. What is it? What is it? It is something that has been ordained by God, but, but, and that's correct, but what is it? There's, there's, there's specific things about it that are very important. Raise your hand. It's okay. It's like I'm scared to death to raise my hand. It is a divinely orchestrated system ordained by God before sin ever enters the picture. Sin is not present. That's what makes these so foundational to society. Now, here's a reason why we know. First institution, the family. Is the world messing up the family? Is the world messing up male and female? Satan's got his mitts all through that. And understand, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are three separate things, but they're all run by the devil, I promise you that. We are never godly in our flesh. That doesn't happen. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus is very clear, John 6, 63. It profits nothing for us. The second divine institution is, anybody remember last week? Oh, man. Work. Exactly. Labor. God shows himself to be a laborer. He works six days. He rests on the seventh. And then he creates Adam, commissions him to work the garden and to keep, to guard the garden. And he gives him a responsibility. What is the responsibility? What is the prohibition that he gives? Don't what? Don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This begins the first dispensation in Scripture known as innocence. There is a responsibility that has been placed upon God's special creation. So now we are going to deal with the third one. But first, we need to get running in the Scriptures to understand what we're doing. So, chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 18. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Elohim being the fact that he is a deity, Yahweh being his personal, intimate name. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Where is the moral declaration? It is what? It's not good. Now, if we're putting on our Bible study skills and we say, okay, my, my first step in studying the Bible is to observe, observe, observe. If that's the case, what I'll notice is, is wait a second, in chapter one, we saw it is good. It was good. It was good. It's very good. Now, all of a sudden, you got something that is not good. Why is this strange here? Why is it strange for God to step in and say, this is not good? What's not present? Oh, well, woman's not present yet, no. And she's very good, right? All, all God's men said amen, right? You better. You're going to be in trouble when you get home. <laughs> but sin, 
think for just a second, let your mind grasp that. Is Adam in a perfect environment? But something is not good. And it's not that Adam got bored. Gosh, God, what's going on here? This isn't good. He's not doing that. Notice it's the one who makes the moral declaration stepping in and saying, as I survey the situation, your loneliness is not good. If he was a true Christian, all he would ever need is in God because he's your all in all. Is that right? Obviously, from God's perspective, it's not. Isn't that interesting? You see why guilt never works on Christians? Well, if you really love Jesus, stop that. God says it is not good. Your loneliness that you're in here is not good. And here's the reason why. Let's think about it for just a second. Is God able to be related to by Adam? See, that's, that's kind of like a, well, I really got to think about that. Are there some things about God that Adam can understand? Well, yeah, obviously, that's true. But are there a lot of things about God that Adam has no clue? Even in a perfect situation, he can't comprehend everything about the Almighty God. Interesting. Now, isn't it God has had to provide everything for Adam in the garden? What's Adam brought to the table? Nothing. God put a hoe in his hand and said, go to work, son. He said, oh, okay. Didn't know what else to do. I'm getting there and work at it. That's fine. Before sin, work is good. He's doing it before sin. Making sure everybody gets that. Okay. But notice what he says here. It's not good the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Who will make him? God will. This is good stuff. Don't miss this. Okay. So watch what happens. Now out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now beforehand, you had God giving designation, moon, sun, stars. I mean, he even named man. But notice that he hands the naming responsibilities over to Adam. Adam is getting an, getting an opportunity to exercise this dominion that he's supposed to have, right? Let them have dominion over all of these things. Part of that is prescribing a name. Anybody here got a kid that has no name? Exercising dominion. Notice how that works. This is, hmm, and he's here for his doctor's appointment. That doesn't fly. They know who your kid is because that's just weird, but it doesn't fly on the papers, right? Hard to keep records that way. But notice what it says here. Brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Here is Adam getting the opportunity to exercise his choice in deciding what each animal is named. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock, all the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, here's what's interesting about this word helper. Sometimes it can be used by people as a demeaning term. Let me tell you why it's not. Not always, but overwhelmingly throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this exact same Hebrew word is used in reference to God himself. Helper, helper, helper. You find it all over the place. God calls himself that. So this idea that man is somehow superior and has this amazing tinfoil crown on and that woman's kind of just down here to rest his arm on if he gets tired kind of thing and that's how she's helping him, get that business out of your mind. That is completely satanic. 
it is. The idea here is that when he looks at the creation that God had made, nothing is found equal, suitable, that fits. Nothing fits. So notice this. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, pause. This does not mean that men have one less rib than women do, okay? Because everybody's like, no. You'd be amazed at some of the questions you get. And closed up its place with flesh. Who's the first surgeon? God is. Performing the first surgery, and he's going to recover well, I promise. We're going to see that. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Hold it. God doesn't just carefully craft the woman. See, this is big time way to go women day, right? He doesn't just craft her, but he says, sweetheart, come here. I want to introduce you to somebody, All right? And leads her over to him. Now think about it for just a second. Imagine that you're there. Imagine that you're either Adam or Eve. Imagine that you're a guy and you've never seen a woman before. Imagine that you're a woman and you've never seen a man before. Right? Perfect environment so those expressions can can fade away. But look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones of the same type and flesh of my flesh. Equality. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word in here is shazam. Not really. See, I can't pull that off here because Pastor Steve will be like, no, it's not. Let's just imagine it is. But let me ask you this, just from reading the text, is Adam excited? Man, he was made way more excited than when they came over and said, okay, koala bears and turtles. He's way more excited about this than he ever was about these animals. Why? Because it's similar. Because he can relate. Because it resonates with him. And get this, this is important. In fact, I have it in your notes you want to see it under the bottom where it says divine institution. I know I'm skipping through some things, but I want you to see this. Genesis 2, 23 through 25. Woman, in fact, some of you ladies are going to put this on your fridge. I promise you this. Every time he walks through, be like, hey, look at the fridge. Woman is God's solution to man's loneliness. Ladies, you are so important Because nothing, nothing can complete a man like you. Nothing. Now, don't everybody get Jerry Maguire on me. You know, you complete me. No. This is way beyond that. This is something that satisfies that you can't put into words. This is something that you relate to that you just can't, you wish you could explain it, but you can't find what's necessary. Wonderful seems too cheap. It's more. It's more. Verse 24. Everybody got your toes out? 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Let's stop there. Guys, the God-given mandate before sin is to cut the cord. You are not reliant upon your mother and your father anymore. If you are still reliant on your mother and father, you better ask yourself the question of whether or not you should be out there. You don't know my circumstances. You're right, I don't, so have grace on me about that. But don't let that be a reason why you reject what God's word clearly says. There's something that happens when a man gets married. That relationship with his mother and father are to separate. Why? Because is that a family over there? Yeah, it is. There's a family over here now. And as long as you keep sucking in off of that family, milking it for everything that it's worth, you can't establish what this family ought to be, not just in responsibility, not just in identity, but in godliness. You can't do it because you're constantly riding upon the coattails of the one who brought you into this world. Not healthy. A man will leave his father and mother, and look what it says. My version says, hold fast. What do you have? Cleave. Somebody had something different. Join is the idea. Imagine you're out in the middle of the ocean. Somebody throws you a life raft. Do you just kind of mosey over to it? No. You wrap your arms around it and you hold on to it for everything that it's worth because if you don't, you drown. Husbands, that is your wife. You hold on to her with everything that you have. She is your confident, confidant. Excuse me. She is the one that you pour into. She is the one that you nurture and love. She is the one that you invest in. Let me tell you this weird story. I'm like, uh-oh. It was a small group Bible study one time. And I walked in, we're sitting down, and I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And it was a couple's Bible study. There's about, you know, five couples there. All the ladies were doing one thing, and all the guys were over there, and they're kind of giggling and being weird. And I'm like, this is, this, it's like you walked into high school somewhere, right? And they're around a locker or something, <laughs> whatever. I was like, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're talking about how great it would be if we'd all get together and have like a sleepover, man. And we could, you're all married, like, well, you want to come and hang out with us? I'm like, no, I'm sleeping over with my wife. Why would I want to sleep over with you guys? You guys should want to sleep over with your wives. What is wrong with you people? 26 years old, they're like, we play video games. There's an absence there of what it means to be in this new family and in this new relationship. And I'll tell you the reason why it is is because since this is a divine institution given by God, it's one of the first things that Satan wants to attack. Think about it. Is Satan attacking gender? Yes. Is Satan attacking work? Yeah, there's a lot of people who want to sit around and do nothing and collect a huge paycheck. That doesn't work. That's how you get in debt. What about here? Has Satan attacked the holding fast? In the couple. Yes, he has. Now notice this. He will cleave to, hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. Now, we're going to elaborate on that. Hold on to it. See, that's the reason why you came today, right? He told me last week is going to be, right? By the way, children's church is going on. If you want to send your kids that way, I'm not going to say anything bad, but true. Notice it says here, and the man and his wife were both naked. Or like we say it in Kentucky, naked. <laughs> they were naked. And here's one thing I think it's important for you to see. In fact, if you want to write this out, it's a transliteration because I cannot do the Hebrew thing, calligraphy looking. I can't do all that. But here it is. A, long A. So you write an A there. You put the long symbol over the top of it. Dash, R-O-M, A-R-O-M. And here's what's interesting about this word. It means no clothes, but lightly covered. Very interesting. And the reason why this is important is because in two weeks when we get into chapter three, you're going to see why it makes a difference. So write that down and we'll refer back to it in a couple of weeks. Okay, A, Rom, naked, but lightly covered. Very interesting. So here they are, no clothes on and no, what what does the text say? No what? No shame. Now, if I'm observe, 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 and let me show you what I did. I wanted to take the principles of observe, 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 and on the back of your handout, I wrote down six observations from this text, and then something that came to my mind that I thought about while I was observing this text from what I knew in the Word of God. Here's the things I found. Number one, marriage is between those of the opposite sex. How did God start the ball rolling? He started it with a man and a woman. He didn't start it with two men and two women. He didn't start it with one man and six women. That's not how it went down. He has a model that is set forward of what the ideal, God-glorifying, ordained, proper, morally correct relationship of which his creative forming design is all over right here. Number two, marriage is one-to-one in its inception. One-to-one, all the Mormons got weird. They did. I'll pick on them. That's weird. That's strange. It's strange to say, no, it's one guy and a whole bunch of others. No, no. No, that's not how God did it. That's not how God did it. If that's ever confusing, come back to the text and simply ask, what does it say? How does it establish it? What boundaries does it give? One-to-one. Notice here, marriage is apart from the father and the mother. It has nothing to do with that relationship. Your marriage with your husband, with your wife, has nothing to do with the former relationship. See, that's difficult because a lot of times parents want to have their hands in marriages. And then that's when you have to have one of those really hard talks. Sometimes the man just can't get out from in that relationship and he constantly wants to pull from mom and dad, especially on their purse strings. It's not what it instructs. Number four, marriage is a cleaving, a joining of the man to the woman. Number five, marriage is signified, notice this, not by a ceremony. It wasn't because you walked down the aisle. Did Adam and Eve walk down the aisle? Not that's recorded. They don't even have a church. How'd they make this happen? Right? 
It's not by signing an official document. Was the state of Wisconsin involved at all? No, they weren't. But how was their marriage solidified? One way, one way only, consummation. See, this is what makes sex before marriage such a problem. Because as soon as you step into that realm, you just got married. You just said your vows. Well, I'm just living my life. Well, it's just a lot of fun. Well, I'm just doing whatever I want to. I'm just sowing my wild oats or whatever all that stuff is. Lame excuses to deny God. In fact, like we've been talking about, the thread that we see anytime that we're looking at this perfect environment and we talk about what has happened with Satan in the world and the flesh and what pulls in on this, all of those responses are a product of unbelief. I don't believe how God has set these things up and I do not believe I should abide by what he has said and I do not believe that he has the best possible future and interest for me and so I will take it into my own hands and I will do what I want with it. Welcome to college. Welcome to high school. Sadly to say, welcome to middle school. That's where it starts. Welcome to grade school. I sit down in a correctional facility. Used to go to a correctional facility and preach. Sit down across from a 12-year-old boy who I kid you not is a bona fide sex addict. 12 years old. And he would tell me how he would call this one girl up and he would go over to her house. But once he got done over there and came back home, he ended up calling up another girl to later on go over to her house. And I've never seen anything more serious in my life, I kid you not. When I'm talking to him about it and I'm explaining to him about how God set it out, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said probably the most honest thing I'd ever heard, I can't stop. The world had gotten so a hold of him He had gotten so convinced into unbelief. In fact, no one had ever even told him the truth, which I think is the real problem. But he had gotten so wrapped into that that he didn't know any other solution, but I gotta be there, I gotta be there, I gotta be there, I gotta be there, I gotta be there. Because that's where self-worth is tied into. Let me ask you this, how many times do you think he's been married? See how that works? That's not how I look at it. That's not how Dr. Ruth looks at it or Dr. Phil looks at it or Oprah looks at it. That's how God sees it. That's how God structures it. Some other things we notice here. Number six, in marriage, nudity is acceptable. It is acceptable and not only that, to be enjoyed. What is the opposite of ashamed? Well, not ashamed, yeah, but give me something else. Is it something to promote? Is it something to be proud of? Is it something to say, ashamed is this. You don't want anybody to see you. Not ashamed is this. (laughs) And it usually comes with a little cartoon bubble that says, that's right. (laughs) That's how it is. Not ashamed. It's awesome. You get the right? In other words, it's good stuff. And I'm going to tell you this, in a marriage relationship, 
between a husband and a wife, there is nothing, nothing wrong with it. The church has been too silent for too long about that fact. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, here's the great thing I like about this. This isn't the only passage that speaks on this issue. So, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7. I would ask you to please still have your handouts because I want to read this little section because I couldn't remember all of it while I was writing it all down. And I apologize. Number seven on there, what I thought of was, it's the model of one man and one woman that Jesus affirms. If you look at Matthew 19, that's how he describes marriage. That's what he goes back to. That way you get, a, you get out of those arguments of, well, that's an old dated method or that's old. It's not. Jesus is totally good with it. One of the greatest tragedies of the past 1,500 years is that the church has been silent on the subjects of sexual intercourse and sexuality. The result has been rampant fornication, teenage pregnancy, a rise in STDs, abusive priests, pregnant nuns, paralyzed wives, guilt-ridden husbands, homosexuality, pornography, and many other distortions and perversions of what God has made as good. Stop and think about this real quick. Some of you right now have just fallen into a legalistic mindset and you are judging me right now. You're questioning my salvation. You're upset at me for bringing this subject up and I promise you I'm not going to say anything that the Word of God doesn't. So make sure that you don't fall into being a legalist about these things, okay? This is important to understand. Accept what the Bible says about this, because I promise you this, you'll experience a great deal of freedom if you do. But think about this real quick. Think about how the issue of sex and sexuality was presented to you. How was it? Think, just think. Don't don't raise your hand, no sharing, okay? We're not sharing that part. But think real quick. Think about this. Think, how was that conversation handled? Did that influence the way that you handled the conversation when you talked with your kids about it? Hopefully you did talk to your kids about it. Because if you didn't, they learned it somewhere. And I guarantee you, you know, Shady Shady McShaderson that goes in fifth grade elementary schools learned all about it from his brother who has a stack of magazines underneath his bed. So I guarantee you, your kids are getting educated sexually somewhere. They are. Let me ask you this question, because I think this is important. When this talk came, or when you gave this talk, how many of you sat down with your kids and had this in your hand? I think that's the difference. Here's the thing. Did God design sex? Yes, he did. Is it before sin? Yes, it is. So it's perfect. God perfectly defined sex for us he perfectly unfolds this in his word and how many times have we come to the table or you've had those like long conference sessions with your mate what are we going to do how are we going to say it i know birds and bees the birds and bees are about as reliable as mother nature man It doesn't exist. It's not true. It's not real. It is exercise in unbelief. Mother Nature didn't create this. The birds and bees only participate in it, but didn't create it. Why not go to the source? Why not see what God has to say about it? 
Because here's what we see. Because the church has been silent about this issue, because the church has pulled back from this issue, because we've had such a, well, we don't talk about that in this family. Here's the worst one. In fact, I can't tell you how many women I've counseled about this situation. Because when they were in church growing up as little girls, here's what they heard. Good girls don't have sex. That's what they heard. Is that a lie? Okay, if it's a lie, who's it from? Satan. Think about it real quick. Is that the biblical model that God set forward? Interesting. But what is the tactic that we've often relied on? Well, if we can just twist it or word it or frame it in such a way, we'll keep them from making that mistake. Does that ever work? No, as soon as you put up the wet paint sign, what happens? That's just the metaphor for life of the sinful nature. We want to participate in everything we don't know. And here's the thing. If you don't talk about it, if you cover it, if you shield it, if you don't explain God's view from it, it becomes more and more curiosity to the person not involved. They've got to know. How do I know that? My son goes over to touch my records. I love my records. He goes over to touch them, and he's getting ready to pull, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, 1958, New Orleans Jazz Festival, off my shelf. And I'm like, no! And he just looks at me and just goes. (laughs) Because I have prohibited it, and I understand I'm dealing with a 16-month-old mind, I get it. But it ain't much different from a teenager, is it? No, it's really not. That's what's sad about the situation. But because I've prohibited it and because I'm not able to explain thoroughly why you shouldn't touch this, or better yet, when he gets older, how to handle this. It's not that you can't touch it. It's that there's a time and a place and a method and a way that you will be able to enjoy things out of it that you never understood before. What's he going to do now with my records? And just... That's what he's going to do to my records. What's meant to happen? You pull them out carefully, dust sleeve, right? You put it on there, needle carefully, not, that's what he would do. Put the needle on carefully, then you turn up the volume slightly and you say, that sounds great. Would he have ever been able to enjoy that the way he was doing it? Never. It's no different with sex. None. So now Paul's got something to say about this. I think it's important for all of us to pay attention. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and I am a stickler for context, it's killing me that we can't get into all that, but it doesn't pertain right now. Just go with me. It is good for a man, and I'm reading the ESV, not to have sexual relations with a woman. What do some of your translations say? To touch. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. The idea here, it's the Greek word haptomai, and it means to fasten yourself to somebody is what it means. It means to cling to or to adhere to. The word cling, does that give you some kind of resonance to Genesis 2? Yes? Cleave unto your wife? Notice it. It's okay if you don't get married is what it's saying. Singleness is okay. That's fine. It's acceptable. It doesn't make you weird. It doesn't make you some kind of strange anomaly. Uh, an, an, an Praise the Lord. 
I'm glad somebody here can talk. Anomaly. See, I can't even say apostrophe either. I can't. It takes forever to think about it. But anyway, anomaly. It's not that you're odd. It's not that you should be rejected. And here's what they don't need. They don't need the pastor calling the phone saying, well, you need to really get married there, boy. What's wrong with you? No, none of that stuff. It's okay. But notice what it says next, verse 2. But, and here's the reason. How do you know it's a reason? He uses the word because. Here's the reason. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. What does your translation say there for sexual immorality? Same thing? Same thing. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Anybody know what that word is in the Greek? See what it sounds like in English. Porneia. What's it sound like? Pornography. And here's what's interesting about this. It is anything that is outside of how God created a situation to be handled. Why? How can you say that? Because he is the one that declares what is morally right and morally wrong. He sets the boundaries. He is the sovereign. He's who we're accountable to, and he is the one that has given us this great gift as responsibility. If we exercise it any way outside of what he's prescribed, destruction. Guaranteed. Guaranteed destruction. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Now, now stop for a second. Is there anything wrong with a man wanting to be with a woman? No, it's not wrong. Now, this one's a little bit trickier. Is there anything wrong with a woman wanting to be with a man? No. Oddly enough, there's not. Right? Some of you are like, I don't believe that. It's true. I promise. But notice, there comes a point when you fall into the realm of temptation. And here's, what's Paul, here's what Paul is saying. Because this temptation is possible. It's not that the desire is wrong. It's that there is a way to handle it. And because this temptation is possible, it's evident, it's relevant, it's going to happen. Is it still relevant today? In spades. Notice what he says here. Each man should have his own wife, singular, and each woman her own husband. One-to-one, if you are tempted with this, you should have your own that is your equal of the same with you. Praise God. What is Paul trying to save you from? What is sexual immorality? Sin. Think about what Paul's saying here. It is better for you to get married than to sin. See, we're all about dabbling in the sin. You, you want me to commit my life and everything, the rest of my life there, and we're going to have kids and raise family. i got to keep a budget and what in the world? Can't eat at Subway? Can't shop at Goodwill anymore? What's going on? You know? Yeah. If you're tempted in this direction and you're going to take that step, guess what? You can take that step. Get married first. Take that step all you want. Because sin is that serious. It's that dangerous. It is that deadly. Take the God-given steps to withstand from sin. Not sex, sin. Now here's the problem is the sexual immorality. What does that constitute? What well, doesn't just constitute everything I've gotten on that list? Do you realize, and this is the last time I checked it, I think these statistics are probably about 7 to 10 years old. 40% of women look at online pornography. Did you know that? 40% of women. 
35% of pastors under a survey of confidentiality admitted they have a pornography addiction. Addiction. They can't get away from it. Do you realize in studies, that medical studies that have been done, we talk about the chemicals in the brain, the effects of pornography on the brain of a human being are greater than someone who has a crack cocaine addiction. It manipulates and destroys your world. And here's the thing, if it was okay, why would people hide it? Even people who aren't believers try to keep that secret. See, the law of God is written on their hearts, testifying to what is right and what is wrong. They know. Is it you? Is it you? Are you involved in looking at pornography? You're not beyond it? Don't care what your age is. The sheer fact that you have flesh on your bones makes you a candidate. Because we all have the sin nature. Well, it's not a big deal. I got it under control. I promise you that you don't. I promise you that it affects everything in your household. You have invited Satan to come in and play house with your family. Beth and I have had to deal with it with other couples. It's tragic. It's hard. Marriage is hanging by a thread. Why is it so serious? Here's the reason why. Sexual immorality, it is the word. Pornea. Do you realize that pornography is adultery? Well, I didn't touch anybody. Doesn't matter. Is that how Jesus looked at it? No. I mean, wasn't he very clear about the whole idea of if you look upon someone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart? You don't even have to spend your cab fare to go over there. You just did it. It just happened. Are we perpetuating unfaithfulness in our marriages? It's harmless. It's on a screen. It's not a big deal. It's just some magazines. It is deadly. And God is very clear here. Understand this, because I've run into this situation too. I've had teenage boys who I've had, who I've had to talk with who are addicted to pornography because their father was teaching them, well, this is what it's like to be a man. And so what did they do? They gave him some pornography to look at. This is, how you're, this is how you become a man. This is what men are involved in. Everybody see the distortion of manhood here. See, Satan attacks everything. He doesn't care. It's like when you break the law with the cop. Man, they're trumping you up for every charge they can. Satan does not care. He does not care about you at all. And this is a problem. And let me say this real quick. I know that I may seem very stiff-jawed about it and very hard-nosed about it or whatever you want to say about it, if you're struggling with this problem, come and talk to me. Get help. Don't let this kill your existence. Life, like Jerry said with the dash, life is too short to waste your time on this mess. This is you slobbering over the record and being willing to break it rather than listen to it. There's so much greater to be had. Come talk to me. Come talk to me. Send me an email, call me, whatever it is, and we will meet together about this because it is a serious issue, and it's alive and well in the church. I, I have no misapprehensions about that whatsoever. It's alive and well throughout the church. Let's move on, though. 
So here it is. The husband should have his own wife. The wife should have her own husband. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights is what I have. The King James says, do benevolence. What do you have? What's it say? Affection. Fulfill his duty. It's a job to get done, right? Now, some of you guys are sitting here and go, baby, that's good preaching, right? Put your arm around it. She's like, oh, gosh. I got the rest of the day to deal with this. That's when you're writing out on the little handout I gave, I have a headache. Passing it over. Notice what it says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise, likewise, in the same way, the wife to her husband. Let me tell you this that's very interesting. Wives, women, it is okay if you want to have sex. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, there's not anything not feminine about it. That doesn't make you certain words that I can't say for reasons that you know, but I'm sure you can think of. That doesn't make you trash. If you want to be sexually satisfied in your marriage, praise God. Because there's a lot of people that have the mental block and can't. There's nothing wrong with that. Now here's the interesting thing about this word. The idea here is both something that is owed and the idea of goodwill for this idea of conjugal rights to do your duty unto one another. The idea is, is that this is what you owe your spouse who is joined in this one flesh relationship. You always owe them. And by participating in it, goodwill is fostered out of it. Does that make sense? Yes. Here's the question I'm going to ask. You ready? Couples, how's your sex life? How's it going? Is it joyous? Is it beautiful? Do you have this peace about it? Glorifies God because we're doing it God's way. Is it regrettable? Is it irritable? Is it that you are just too busy thinking about what needs to be done around the house and so you're not in the moment? Is it a hassle? Because those are very real results that a lot of people think they would never say. Communication is important. What does God say about it? You know what? To save you from sin, here's the divine institution in which to exercise your sexuality. Why? Because it's okay. Because it's godly. Because God designed it. Because it's okay for you to be involved in this way, doing this thing, completely (laughs) naked, unashamed, Praise the Lord for it. Nothing wrong with it. But there's one thing for it being that, and it's another thing for us obeying in that. Does that make sense? This may be the way that God structured it, and I know that's what God's Word says, but I don't care what God's Word said because I'm doing this. A lot of us would do better if we just stopped and were obedient. How's your sex life going? Is it good? Is it bad? If it's bad, why? Why? When's the last time you had sex? 
because it's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. If it's not good, why is it not good? Just let the problem fester and go on? Something to think about. Because God promotes so much more. Verse 4. 4, here's an explanation. The wife does not have authority. She does not have exousiato. It is the idea of power. Authority and power. She does not have authority and power over her own body. Did you hear that, honey? Did you hear what he said? Write that down. But the husband does. Likewise, in the same way, the husband does not have same word, power, authority over his own body, but the wife does. Does everybody see the equality in this relationship? Notice God's very clear. You don't have authority or sorry, you have authority over her body. She has authority over your body. It sounds like a lot of communication needs to take place in order for this to be explosive as well as cohesive. Does that make sense? Notice it, what the text is pushing for here. Now, verse 5, uh-oh, here's the problem. Do not deprive one another. Do not defraud one another is what the word means. Don't rob one another. That gets kind of serious. Anybody ever robbed anybody? Don't raise your hand. It's like, jail's right over there. No. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, okay, here's a condition, by agreement. Now, here's what's interesting about this word, by agreement. Symphonos. It's where we get the English word symphony from. It means that you have a harmonious, concerted, like-minded, this is the reason why we are not going to have sex. Together. Together. Harmonious. Mutual. You guys came to this agreement. Everybody see communication here. Good stuff. So notice what it says. For a limited time. I didn't get any amen out of the guys. I can't believe it. That you may devote yourselves to what? Prayer, interesting. The only reason why you shouldn't be having sex in your marriage is to devote yourself to prayer about something. And it should be mutually agreed upon in the one flesh relationship, meaning that both parties that make up the one flesh are both devoted to this prayerful situation. Everybody got me? So notice, sorry, everybody got Paul. Okay, good. Notice what it says here. But then... After that happens, that's the only reason why you shouldn't be, because if you not for other reasons besides mutually devoting yourselves to prayer, you are robbing and defrauding your spouse. You are not paying in what you owe for the goodwill of the marriage. Notice what it says here. But then, come together again. And here's the reason. Look who's behind the do-nots here so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, that leads me immediately to an application question. Does Satan have a foothold in my marriage? Because this is a place where he will reach in and he will strangle it to death. I'm curious, and I'm not trying to expose anybody or anything like that, but I'm curious. Think through it. If you don't want to raise your hand, that's fine. If you feel comfortable raising your hand, do so. I I'm interested. 
How many of us in here know of a marriage that has been ripped apart because of pornography or adultery? Anybody? Maybe a lot of us more than one. Is it ever fun? Is God ever glorified? See, the amazing secret about sex is, is that if we would just handle it God's way, it would preach volumes. Because I promise you, it doesn't take long listening to the radio. It doesn't take long watching TV. It doesn't take long walking through the Walmart aisle to look at the magazines to figure out that they're all searching for answers and they never open this book to get them. Guess who has the answer to share with them? Exactly, because they're not going to open this. But I promise you, Monday comes, you have a conversation. Man, it should have been church yesterday. Here's what we talked about. <laughs> That's what you'll get, right? What in the world? Where do you go to church? And here's what they're not going to tell you. They want to be here. <laughs> and we'll see them next Sunday. Having the truth as your answer is the greatest thing. Notice that Satan will get in and tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am. Now Paul, before he became a convert, was part of the Sanhedrin. He was probably required to be married by Jewish uh, expectations at that time. And so chances were he's either divorced, his wife left him whenever he became a Christian, deserted him, abandoned him, whatever happened at that moment. But he's not married at this time. He was single. Notice it says here, but each has his own gift. Each has his own charisma. Each has his own grace. Each one's been graced in a different way. Paul understands that not everybody's like him. Paul understands that not everybody can be single. He gets it. He says here, one of one kind, one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. And if you're curious about that, verses 25 through 32 give an explanation about why singleness is an okay option and the opportunities that you have in your singleness. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, there's the litmus test. There is the lick your finger and put it to the wind. In this relationship with this person, can I exercise self-control? I cannot. What should I do? They should marry. You should go ahead and commit your life to that person for as long as you live till death do y'all part, right? Notice what it says. For, here's the explanation, it is better to marry than to burn. And if you notice in italics in the NASB, it says with passion, right? In italics, it means it's not in the original. The translator supplied it. Now, does he mean it's better for you to marry than to go to hell? I mean, that's not what he's talking about. He's writing to Christians. So we know that's not what he's talking about. It is better for you to marry than to struggle with this sin. It is better for you to marry than to let sin have its way with you. Sin is serious. Sin is deadly. And if we are operating in our marriages in any other way than what God prescribes, we are in unbelief and therefore we are in sin over this. Now, here's what I don't want. You may feel this way. This is a weird subject. Some of you are still sweating. I 
I've never found that God is a God of guilt. I've found that God is abundantly a God of grace. And being abundant in grace, I'll tell you this, number one, he's not surprised by our sin. He knows it takes place. All of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross. Don't be so concerned with putting up your stuff and clicking your grace Bible pen back into place that you don't need to pay attention, please. Shameless advertisement, but for real. They're available out there for free. But understand this. There's a lot of ways that we operate in life, and Satan has so grabbed a hold of this for everybody that he is destroying one of the greatest proclamations of what a Christian life of freedom and love is supposed to look like. And because Christians won't talk about it, it has crippled the church. The church is not any better because of their silence on this issue. Paul was not silent. Paul took the most rowdy church that he had, the most worldly church that he knew, and that's who he unveiled this truth to. Seems pretty important for us if we're dealing with much, much worse. Christians have something to say on this issue. And the most amazing thing about it was before Satan ever got a hold of it and sin got a hold of it and flesh got a hold of it and the world got a hold of it and twisted it into everything that they try to make it to be so it's nothing but a cheapened imitation of what God has truly orchestrated for his glory to be enjoyed. Church has something to say. We have truth to give about this subject. And I will tell you this. It is okay to talk about it. One of my favorite things to do in premarital counseling is to sit down across from this young couple. How many people have hung out with a young couple lately? Like freshly married? They're gross, aren't they? (laughs) And you just want to go, Right? Because you made it past year two of marriage. You know what's going on. You just wait, buddy. Stick it out for the long haul. But in the second session, I always give the talk on sexual immorality. We go through worksheets together. And I usually bring a brand new, fresh 11 by 17 yellow legal pad. They're sitting across from me at Denny's or something like that. And I go, okay. Here's what we're going to do to start this out. I put the pad in front of them, click my pen, set it down. I said, I need you guys to write out everything in explicit detail that you have done of any sexual matter whatsoever, even down to kissing or flirty eyes or whatever it is. I need you to write all this out for me so that we can read over it out loud together. The guy can't breathe. But you know what the sad part is? The girl weeps. She doesn't cry. She doesn't tear. She doesn't need to find a Kleenex somewhere in her purse. She weeps. Sometimes so much to a point where I've had to say, okay, let's take 
10-minute break because she can't collect herself. Why? Because at that moment, when it's all to be laid out on the table, and it's all been done in secret, which you know if it's done in secret, it's not part of the truth. Everything done in darkness is not part of the light. If you can't talk about it plainly, if you can't talk about it as a mature adult, and that's what we need to do, mature Christian adults in a God-glorifying situation, there's sin, there's unbelief in the mix, and it breaks people. But understand this, God is a God of grace. God does not want us perpetuating that type of, oh my gosh, moments. If you're someone who is dealing with emotional affairs, pornography, temptations towards adultery, past sins that you can't get over, you just can't reconcile. Maybe your marriages aren't going well because you were one of those people who were told good girls don't have sex. That's not the way it is. That's not the truth. It's not what God says. Come talk to me. Please. 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 Let's pray. Father, such a serious subject. And because of your design, such a beautiful subject. Father, I pray that our minds would ponder the goodness of what you've created to be used as you've commanded it, to be cherished and protected, and to create gratitude because of your design. Father, I pray every one of our hearts as men would appreciate the women in our lives like we never have before. Giving all praise to you for not just designing them, but bringing them to us. Father, I pray whatever guilt and shame has been clouding marriages for days, months, years, whatever it is, Father, all that has been paid for at the cross. There is liberty in the Christian life. There is freedom as you have given to obey as you have constructed, Lord. Father, we thank you so much of that. You just being a God of grace. You just being a God who gives us beyond what we ever deserve, Lord loving us to the uttermost. Father, I pray today our thinking be corrected and that we would be willing to have those open conversations that you have something to say about this because you designed it, you made it, you fashioned it to be for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.